Well, I'm tempted to ask, how long would you like me to preach for this evening, really, with that passage? There's so much in Romans 11 and 12, um, so much. We can only have time, really, just to skim over the waters of Romans 11 and 12, but there's so, much good thing, so many good things uh, in, in, in this passage here. And I really hope that we can feel inspired and uh, encouraged by God's word to us tonight. Uh, through three points. So if you're taking notes or whatever, I have three points for you. The first one is God's grace overflows to fill the church, looking at chapter 11, 25, 32. Second one is be shaped by God's grace, uh, beginning in chapter 12, 1 and 2. And third, be served together under grace in the church. Thanks to uh, Fiona uh, for inspired choice of songs this evening. That's marvellous. And I'm going to use one of those as I pray. So let's pray as, before we start the sermon. How high and how wide, how deep and how long, how sweet and how strong is your love. How lavish your grace, how faithful your ways, how great is your love, O Lord. Lord, as we come to listen to your word and to hear it preached tonight, Lord, we think about how lavish your grace is, how lavishly you've given us uh, so much of yourself. Thank you for your great love. And Lord, I pray that as we uh, listen to your word this evening, you would change our hearts and transform us by your Holy Spirit. In the name of Christ. Amen. Would it be helpful if you have the uh, page open in front of you? It's 1138. Perhaps uh, you know somebody who's had all the advantages of a Christian upbringing, loving parents, good Bible teaching, and yet later on in life they've turned away from Christ and become so hardened against the gospel that they are apparently beyond recovery. Or perhaps you shared the gospel with someone uh, and they were interested. But then something happened, like an illness or the apparently senseless death of somebody they loved or they were close to. And as a result, they completely rejected what you had to say and cut off the friendship to some extent. Is there any hope for those who have heard and rejected the gospel. Well, if that's you, then we need to draw hope and encouragement from Romans 11 uh, tonight. And let's look at that first point. God's grace overflows to fill the church. So what do I mean? We're looking at this from Paul's perspective. The most hardened, difficult people to reach at the time with the gospel of Christ would probably have been the Jews who had rejected the Messiah. That was certainly the experience of Paul and Barnabas in Acts 13. And just if you have a flick back to page 1107, we can just have a quick look at that together. In Acts 13, and verse 14, Paul and Barnabas visit uh, Pisidian Antioch. And verse 14 says that they entered the synagogue and they were invited to speak. And verse 16 says, Paul speaks to them. He talks to them about the history of Israel, mentioning, as he does so, all the patriarchs of the nation, before finally, over the page on verse 32, arriving at what he calls the good news, the gospel of Christ, in verse 32. As a result of that, 43, verse 43, many followed them and were talking more with Paul and Barnabas. However, other Jews uh, were jealous of the crowds that were gathering, So they uh, um, started speaking abusively against what Paul and Barnabas were saying. In Acts 13, 46, it says, 
Paul explains, we had to speak the word of God to you first. But since you reject it, and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. So there was Paul and Barnabas sharing the gospel with the Jews in the synagogue at Antioch. They, uh, some of them were interested and were listening, but others were jealous of what was going on, and they started speaking abusively against Paul and rejected clearly the gospel. As a result, Paul said, I'm going to leave the synagogue and I'm going to go and speak to the Gentiles. We might well think that's it. These Jews had all the advantages that Paul spoke of, of being descendants of the patriarchs. They had the law and the prophets and the wisdom of the Old Testament, and yet they have rejected the good news of the Messiah. And Paul, even Paul, God's messenger to them, had apparently given up on them and gone elsewhere to speak to others. What a sorry state of affairs. And something that many of us have probably experienced with family and friends. So what a surprise it is, back in Romans 11 again, in verse 26, when these words leap out at us, which say, and so all Israel will be saved. There's so much uh, to talk about here, and I can't possibly cover it in 10 minutes, so I'll just try and give you some pointers to understanding this phrase. Now, when we come to look at this phrase, and so all Israel will be saved, it's a subject that scholars debate and debate endless um, essays, including one of my own, of 7,000 words have been written on precisely this verse, verse 26. When we come to try and understand it, I think firstly we have to realise that I don't think the question is asking, the question behind the statement, in fact you can have the questions off on the screen, go on. I don't think the question is, will all Israel, in other words, every Jew be saved at the end of the time? See, behind that question, there's a much bigger question, which goes along the lines of, is God faithful to his promises to Abraham and Moses? You see, these questions have some, led some scholars, some, some theologians, to conclude that there must be this two-track salvation process going on. One for us uh, Gentiles, that is by faith and believing in Christ, and then there's something else entirely for the Jews, something more automatic, something that will see them all saved at the end of time to uh, justify and this phrase, and so all Israel will be saved. But I don't believe that that is what Paul is talking about here. For one thing, it would be contrary to everything that else, else that is said in Romans, pretty much. Is God faithful to his promises? That's the second part of that question. Well, yes. I think God is faithful to his promises, but not necessarily in the way that the Jews at the time would have been expecting. Because this whole concept of Israel, the chosen nation of God, was really fulfilled in Christ, and a new Israel has been built around him. That's us, the church. So does the Jewish heritage count for anything? Well, I think yes. Paul says in 11, uh, chapter 11 and verse 28, he says the Jews are loved on account of the patriarchs. In chapter 10 and verse 1, he says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. You see, Paul, despite going to the Gentiles, had not given up on the Jews. He desperately wanted them to be saved. He knew that they had so much heritage. They had the patriarchs, they had the promises of God behind them. You can't just turn your back on the Jews. But I still think that the actual question, there's a second one there behind the statement. The question is, how? By what process will all Israel be saved? How will the Jews, who've been hardened against the gospel, they've turned their back on their, Messiah, their own Messiah, Christ, how will they come to believe in the gospel? So let's have a look at the context of this little phrase a little bit more carefully. In here, in, in these verses, 25 to 32, it's really Paul 
recapping what has already been said in chapters 9 to 11. And verse 25 also tells us what Paul's writing, a purpose is for writing. So in verse 25 he says, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Uh, Alan spoke a bit about this last week. Even Even today, you can get the impression that sometimes only good stuff happens in the capital cities, in London or in other places. It's like the weather map on the BBC, isn't it? You know, it shows London in a sort of big, big corner down at the bottom and then Scotland reaching off into the distance somewhere. Everything's centred on London, the capital city. So how much more then with these people who are based in Rome, the capital of the, ha- the whole entire Roman Empire, how much more would they be tempted towards thinking that they are the best, thinking that only good things come from Rome? So what is this mystery which is able to prevent them from becoming conceited? Well, despite what you may be thinking, it's not the fact that Paul's letters are so difficult to understand. It's not that which makes it a mystery. These, um, in the Holy Communion service sometimes, during the Eucharistic prayer in the Holy Communion service, there's these optional words which says, great is the mystery of faith. And Alex has noticed that I sometimes miss them out. And I think that's probably because Sometimes they're so often to me, taken to mean that great is the mystery of faith. Yes, faith is just so completely incomprehensible. I just can't get my head around it. But I don't think that's what it actually means. You see, I think the mystery here is more along the lines of an Agatha Christian mo- novel, you know, an Agatha Christian mystery, mystery. So there's a real lack of understanding of what's going on throughout the whole book until the very end when the mystery is made clear and everything is fully understood as everybody gathers in the drawing room. You see, in Paul's thinking, the mystery here remained for many centuries. But in Christ, the mystery has been revealed completely and clearly. So in the book of Romans, the mystery that has been made known to us is declared back in uh, chapter 3 and verse 21. Just flick back to that, chapter 3, verse 21. Where Paul writes, But now, a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. That's what I think Paul is referring to when he says, um, when he talks about the mystery in chapter 11. You see, let's put this to the test. If I say to you, great is the mystery of faith, as good Anglicans, what do you respond? Christ is risen. You're not such good Anglicans, are you? Come on. <laughs> Great is the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. And Christ will come again. You see, that is the mystery. That is the mystery that Paul is talking about in, in chapter 11 and verse 25. Do not want, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not become conceited. Why is that going to stop them from becoming conceited? Well, it's because this is the revolutionary, the incredible revolutionary thinking that righteousness that saves us in God's eyes doesn't come by our own good works. It doesn't come through our religion or by observing a law or by being good people. It comes by faith and only by faith and only by faith in Christ. And because he died and he rose again, our sin becomes his and his righteousness becomes ours and we live new lives under his kingship until he comes again. And that is the mystery of faith. That is why we cannot become conceited. That is why we can never boast. 
That is why in chapter 11, verse 20, Paul was so eager to remind the Romans that they stand by faith and therefore they should not be arrogant but be afraid. See, Paul writes this, he says, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, dear brothers and sisters, says Paul, so that you may not become conceited. You see, Israel has experienced the hardening in part until the full numbers of Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved. So here it is, the three-part process, if you like, that Alan started to describe last, night, last week. How is Israel, which has rejected the Messiah, going to be saved? Let's, um, well, there's, there's three parts to this. Part one is, Israel has experienced a hardening in part, as, as Paul writes. Part two is, until the full number of Gentiles has come in. Part three, and so, or in other words, in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now that's a lot to take in, so I've drawn some diagrams. Let's have a first one. Here's part one. This is just to explain this process. So part one, you see God's mercy being offered to Israel. God's mercy in Christ, as Christ came to Israel um, as their Messiah. But they rejected it. They turned their backs on that mercy. They put a lid on the little container there of Israel, if you, like, if you see what I mean. In part two, mercy overflows, therefore. So they turned their back on that mercy. They rejected it. So mercy overflows to the Gentiles around, the rest of the world, everybody apart from the Jews. God's mercy overflows to them. And then part three, Israel begins to be made jealous by the church. You see, as the church, as the Gentile church comes to know and recognize the mercy of God, the grace of God, it transforms their lives and they become so encouraged, so attractive to the, to the Israelites, to the Jews, that they become jealous of the grace that they received. Next slide. And then, oh, no, go back, that's it. Um, <laughs> and by that way, you can see the God's mercy then overflows back, if you like, into Israel. So in the first part one, Israel rejects mercy. Part two, the full number of Gentiles come in. Part three, Israel is jealous, and by that way, God's mercy overflows and floods into Israel as well. Now, next slide. It sounds like this process might be sort of linear, sequential, like that. So the Jews reject the message, the Gentiles accept it, and in that way some of the Jews accept it in turn. But it's not meant to be like that. It's more like the following diagram. It's more concurrent. So some Jews reject, some Gentiles accept, some Jews accept, some Jews reject, and so on. And it just goes on and on and on. But it's kind of like a spiral, so not a straight circle. Do you like the diagrams? We don't often have diagrams, and no, Adrian, do you do? But we've got diagrams tonight. So it's not like a straight circle, but it's like a spiral, a spiral staircase, if you like. So as we go around this, set, this, this, this circle, um, more and more Jews and more and more Gentiles uh, become converted and become saved by God's amazing grace. And, um, and as a result of that, even more Jews will become saved as well. So Paul talks about that in verse 25. He also talks about it again in verse 28 where he says, as far as the gospel is concerned, the Jews, they are enemies on your accounts. They've rejected the message. They've turned their backs on Christ. That's part one of that sequence. And because of their disobedience, verse 30, you were, who were at one time disobedient to God, that's the Gentiles, you have received mercy. That's part two of that sequence. But, Paul says, that's not the end of the story. 
because verse 28, he says, as far as election is concerned, they, the Jews, are loved on account of the patriarchs, for God's gifts and his calls are irrevocable. In other words, God is faithful to his promises. And verse 31, they, the Jews, became disobedient, only in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. That's part three again. You see, in short, verse 32, we are all bound over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on us all. And none of us, whether Jew or Gentile, none of us have the right to boast. So it's all about God's amazing, overflowing grace to us. None of us have the right to boast. None of us are saved, whether Jew or Gentile, by our own works, by our own religion. It's all about God's amazing grace that just flows onto us and overflows around us to the whole world. But the question remains, for those of you who are into these theological questions, how many of these Jews will be saved? And we simply don't know. See, different Christians have different opinions, and some of them get quite worked up about it. But really, there's no point in falling out about it. If we believe only a remnant of Jews, a small number, will respond, then we give praise to God for each one. If there's a massive turning of Jews to Christ near the end time because of their jealousy of the Gentile church, then we just praise God all the more for the way his saving grace overflows to the whole world. And that, if you look down, that's exactly what happens to Paul. In verses 33 to 36, he just slips into praising God for the sheer wonder and wisdom of God's overflowing mercy and grace. Let's just read that. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. To God be the glory forever. This is not about us. This is about how God goes about saving the world. See, and that's my first application. We should simply praise God for his overflowing grace that can save the whole world, no matter what background or race we are coming from, or even how hardened we've become to the message. God's grace and mercy overflows to fill his church, and it's sufficient to reach even the most hardened of our friends or our relations. So we mustn't give up on those hard people. If God can save the Jews through the Gentiles, then God can save our friends through us. Also, we should see that God's grace is never given to us simply for ourselves. We should always be humble about grace. Do not be conceited. See, even in the Old Testament, God showed mercy to Israel so that they would be a blessing to other nations. And in the New Testament, the New Covenant, God gives grace to, to the Gentiles so that the Jews might be saved. God's grace is never something that we should keep to ourselves. You see, there, there should be something supernatural going on whenever we meet together, whenever Christians meet together. There should be forgiveness and patience and forbearance and, and costly love, which is visible and attractive to people which you simply don't find anywhere else. And that's why it's so important that we do invite people to church. It's not just about the music or even the message that's given from the pulpit. What makes the biggest impact on many people is just simply God's grace at work in you and me as we meet together. So none of us can boast. 
It's all about God's overflowing grace. Second point, be shaped by God's grace. Chapter 12 and verse 1 and 2. Verse 1. Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Now it could be all too easy to preach Romans 12 without the rest of the book. It would then read like a list of instructions. It would say, be holy, please God, transform yourself, know God's will. But that's not what Paul says here at all. He says, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy. You see, everything we are now urged to do in the light of, is in the light of God's overflowing grace and mercy which we have experienced. We can't do it by ourselves. It's all in the light of God's mercy. So how do we answer when somebody asks us, you know, how things are going with us? How have things been with you? you? Well, sometimes it's difficult, isn't it, to know how to sum it all up. That's happened to me a lot this week. You know, when people come up to me, I haven't, I've been away on a conference and I've been meeting a lot of my old friends from college and so on, and they come and often say, well, how's it going? You know, how's it, how's it all going? And it's so difficult to sort of sum up, you know, a year and a half of life experience in, in one little phrase. But there's one answer that a close reading of this passage in Romans should drive us to give, and that is that God has been very kind to me. He has shown me his patient compassion and mercy. He has taken pity on me. His grace has overflowed to me. And that's the truest answer that any Christian can give. You see, even when things don't go right, and I'm the worst at this, I'm, I enjoy a good whinge. My wife, Sylvia, has come to the evening service once tonight, and it's, she knows how much I can whinge. When things are going right or wrong, it's easy just to become downhearted and discouraged, isn't it? But it ought to be what we can, that we can turn around and we can say, despite that, despite all that's going on, God has been kind to me. He's shown me gracious compassion and mercy. And that kind of response, that kind of uh, response and what we're saying to other people ought to be what somebody else has called the steady background music to our lives. You see, this is far more than an emotional appeal here to sacrifice yourselves and live better lives. You see, Paul is saying that unless you know God's mercy, unless you know his grace in your life, you can never offer yourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Only those who have died to sin and been made alive in Christ can ever become living sacrifices. They're the only ones who have been set free from law, and are being shaped by grace. And that's what chapter 6 of Romans is all about. 6 uh, and verse 13 says, Offer yourselves to God as, though, as those who have been brought from death to life, and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. So before we make ourselves living sacrifices, we have to pass from death to life. But what does this little phrase, offering our bodies to Christ, really mean? So it's really the same as saying everything we are and everything we do. So if you like, we could think about the different parts of our body. We could think about our feet, where we go in the service of God. Our hands, what we do. Our eyes, how our ambition works, what our ambitions are. We could think about our affections and our loves, including our sexuality, and how we control that if we're single, or, and how we use it if we're married. 
We can think about our minds and all the thinking that we do and using the thinking that we do in the service of God. We can think about our money, our ability to influence others, our organisational skills. Are all of these things being offered to God as a living sacrifice of our bodies? Can people who know us and know us well, can they see the difference that God is making to our lives? You see, our lives should be deeply attractive and challenging to anybody outside of the church. Sometimes we speak about sacred spaces, don't we? As if there's a particular time or place where worship should take place. Many churches encourage this, this, this idea, this type of uh, sacred ground type of idea. But what Paul is doing here is he's making our worship mobile. So wherever there are Christians, wherever they are meeting, and wherever they are offering themselves as living sacrifices, that is where there is sacred space. That is where holiness is to be found. So does our own church move to this background music of God's grace, mercy and kindness? Or is there a kind of brittleness which you find when people forget God's grace to them? Are we marked by devotion for God and a willingness to give everything for him? Or are we marked by grumbling and resentment? Can we forgive others when things go wrong because we know ourselves to be forgiven? Or do we get frustrated and upset when others let us down? What is our background music? Verse 2 says, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. See, as we've seen, we can only become living sacrifices if we have died to sin and come alive in Christ. Similarly, without the help of the Holy Spirit, we could never give up conforming to this world. Back in Romans 1.28, Paul says that by nature we have a depraved mind. That's a mind completely unable to do what God wants. A mind completely that only wants to do what ought not to be done. And in his letter to Titus, Paul writes this in chapter 3. He says... But when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. There it is, mercy again. He saved us through the washing, rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Saviour. So we are transformed by the renewal of the Holy Spirit, who's been poured out on us by Jesus. The word transformed is the same word that is used for Jesus uh, when we catch a glimpse of him in his glorious state in the transfiguration accounts in Matthew and Mark, he was transformed into a glorious state before the disciples. Paul uses the same verb again in 2 Corinthians in chapter 3, where Christians are being transformed into likeness of Christ with ever-increasing glory. What a difference from our depraved minds of Romans chapter 1 to be transformed from glory to glory, ever-increasing glory. You see, it means being cut free from the controlling influences of this world. The opinions of the politicians, the opinions of the TV and the newspapers, and allowing the Holy Spirit to challenge us and shape us so that instead of listening to those other sources, we delight in God's law and we live for Christ. And that is what it means when Paul says, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. It's not 
talking, I think, about detailed guidance in a detailed sense. What job should I take or what house should I buy? It means putting ourselves under God's word and living by it. That surely is what it means to be shaped by God's grace. My final point, point three, serve together under grace in the church. So what happens when our transformed minds come together? The answer is the church. Verses 3 to 8 talk about how we can serve one another within the church. And once again, the starting point is grace. For by the grace given me, says Paul. In this case, Paul makes it personal. He says, the grace given to me. Because he's about to talk about serving the church. And here was a man who was being driven by ambition to violence against the church and persecution of the church in the past. His heart had been well and truly hardened against the name of Jesus. He had rejected the Messiah and he was determined to kill his followers. He was the hardest of the hard. And yet he too, this man Paul, this violent man Paul, had met the grace of God when Jesus met him on the Damascus Road. And he says, for by the grace given to me. You see, he was a man who clearly reflected deeply on who he once had been. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. It seems now that we are reduced to uh, judging ourselves and our leaders on um, and how attractive on the, they seem on television during these televised debates. And you have to feel sorry for Gordon Brown, don't you? Whatever you think of him, you have to feel sorry for him especially following his uh, so-called disastrous day last Wednesday. I wonder if he went to bed that night thinking, oh, I wish I could be like David Cameron, or I wish I could be like Nick Clegg. Some of us suffer from low self-esteem, and that comes from comparing ourselves with other people. And television, of course, is full of programs that are aiming to help us to feel better about ourselves, like how to look good naked, I'm sure none of you have seen that one. But paradoxically, self-esteem and pride have a lot in common. Because both have their source in comparing ourselves with other people, rather than seeing myself as having my value entirely grounded in the grace of God. So Paul says, think of yourself as sober judgment, in accordance with the measure of faith that God has given you. But what does he mean by this measure of faith? That could mean... Uh, in the sense of a standard, a kilo weight on, the, on, on scales, or a standard-sized scoop at your pick-and-mix counter. In this case, the measure we should measure ourselves against is simply faith, which is shorthand for remembering that I owe God everything and have no reason to boast, as we've already seen. It could also mean that God hands out faith in different doses. And we do see people who are stronger and weaker in their faith in Romans 14. But if this is the case... Once again, there's still no room for pride and no room for boasting. So the more faith we have received, the more deeply we should appreciate the grace of God and the less we should boast. Either way, our response is simply to worship God. Not just worship in terms of song and prayer, but worship expressed in serving one another in the church. So each member belongs to the others, it says in verse 5. As one commentator put it, it is not about me, but about us in Christ. So you're probably aware um, that I belong to Sylvia and Sylvia belongs to me because we are husband and wife. But are you aware that Alex belongs to Tim 
and Tim belongs to Martin because you are all part of this church. You are members of this church. You belong to one another. See, we don't come to church just to see what we can get out of the meetings. We come because we want to serve our brothers and sisters within the church. You should re- we should really all be out dedicating ourselves to the work of overturning that old dictum, there's no such thing as a free lunch. You see, we don't have time, um, uh, you know, we should just be giving free lunches out, left, right and centre, really, metaphorically and practically. We don't have time to look at all the examples that Paul gives us in detail, individually. But we should note that our service, whether it's prophecy, practical serving, teaching, encouraging, giving, leadership, or showing mercy, should all be done in the knowledge of the grace that we have received. It should be done simply. In fact, in verse 8, where it says uh, that generously, we should give generously, the word really means simply, simplicity, with simplicity. And church life should be marked by simple generosity, not expecting reward or enhanced prestige. None of our service, whatever it should, should be self-serving or driven by pride. It is simply a response to the grace that we have received. And it's not just about us sat here in this room today. The Christian church exists throughout the world. And so we ought to be thinking about how we can serve our brothers and sisters in Christ in other parts of England and other parts of the world. If it's contributing to the needs of others, let us give generously. You see, we owe everything to God's overflowing grace. And we need to be shaped by that grace in our lives so that we can be truly attractive and challenging to those around us. And we need to serve in our church under that grace. So let us pray as we come to an end. Oh, the uh, depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And Lord, may that be our prayer. May our lives just overflow with praise and joy because of the overwhelming, overflowing grace that we have received. And Lord, we pray for those who have not yet accepted the message, who have not yet accepted the good news of Jesus Christ. We pray that you would move in their hearts and you would make them jealous of the lives that we lead and you would turn them to Christ so that they too may know your grace and mercy and kindness.